right after Labor Day. But the Bible says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Therefore, you should definitely wear a Hawaiian t-shirt this Sunday. So here it is. So... But, you know, as I read that Facebook message, I said to myself, this person had actually read the text for the sermon this morning. So I said, you know, I need to affirm that. So here it is. So let's go. Now, you know, as they say, choices have consequences. And I am reaping the consequence of wearing the short sleeve shirt because I'm a little bit cold. So I'm going to count on you to kind of warm me up. Okay? So... On a serious note, though, in the Bible, God has clearly communicated the choices that are available for us to make. And that each of our choices has consequences. And you may have heard the phrase, our choices have consequences. So let me give you two examples from the Bible, one from the Old Testament and the other one from the New Testament. In the Old Testament, I want to look to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, where God says this. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. There are the choices. Blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Then in verses 17 and 18, and the same thing that we read, again the choices that are available and the consequences. But if your heart turns away and are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. That's the consequence. In the New Testament, we read Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, for example. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. That's your choice. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. There's a choice between life and destruction. And the narrow gate versus the wider gate. And those who find it are few. Enter through the narrow gate and choose life is one choice. Or enter through the white gate and choose destruction is another choice and the consequence. And of course there are many, many more. In our sermon text this morning, God, through the Apostle John, is offering us a choice. A choice between worldliness and godliness. Specifically, he is calling us to reject worldliness and pursue godliness. That's the choice. Worldliness and godliness. And that's what we will be looking at this morning. So I invite you to open your Bibles to First John chapter 2. And if you are using the blue Bible that's provided by the church that looks like this, you will find that on page 1302. First John chapter 2. Page 1302. Perhaps some of you know this, that we are in the middle of a sermon series from the New Testament book of 1 John, the book that we were looking at. 
This was a book written by one of Jesus' 12 apostles, namely the Apostle John. That's why it has his name on it. Back in chapter 1, he introduced God as light. God is light. There is no darkness in him. And called on Christ's followers to walk in the light. Since then, he has been explaining what that really means. What does it mean to walk in the light? First, he said that those who walk in the light renounce sin. Second, they obey God's word. Third, he said that they love one another. And in the sermon this morning, he explains the fourth characteristic of those who walk in the light. That is, they reject worldliness and pursue holiness. So that's what we were looking at beginning in verse 12. So let's get the bad news out of the way, and then we'll come back and finish the sermon with the good news. So for that reason, I want to begin with worldliness that the Apostle John presents in verses 15 through 17. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. In some Bibles you will see pride of life and then you will see a footnote that says pride in possessions. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, in verse 16, you will notice that John talks about three things the world offers. First, the desires of the flesh. Second, the desires of the eyes. And third, the pride in possessions. Now, this may not be an exhaustive list, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, those were the three things that we chose to put in his letter. Now, the desires of the flesh refer to our natural inclination to sin. Because our fallen, sinful nature is not completely eradicated at salvation. We all know that. Those of us who have been born again, we continue to struggle with sin because the flesh is still there. Even the Apostle Paul felt the effects of the sinful nature. For example, he writes in Romans chapter 7, Oh, what a wretched man I am. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I have decided to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. Then he goes on to explain the reason, because the sinful nature, the flesh that dwells in me. That's what the phrase means, the desires of the flesh. 
The sinful nature is still there, even in born-again believers of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we continue to struggle with sin in our lives. Earlier in the sermon, we looked at that calls for a life of confession, confession of sins. Confession to God, confession to one another. Now, the desires of the eyes, I want to propose it refer to temptations resulting from what our eyes see. If we are not careful, such temptations can lead to sin. Perhaps the two well-known examples, biblical examples, are Adam's wife, Eve, looking at the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden and feeling it was a delight to her eyes. And King David, looking lustfully at someone else's wife, Bathsheba, as she bathed. You see, the desires of the eyes... And unless we are careful, it can lead to sin. In both of these cases, the lust of the eyes led to serious sins. In the case of Eve, she brought sin into the world and everything that is associated with that corruption. In the case of David, it led to killing of Bathsheba's husband and confrontation with prophet Nathan and loss of his firstborn. All of that because of that particular sin. Now these are in contrast to Jesus' temptation in the desert. Jesus was tempted. That's why I want to say here, temptation by itself is not bad. Jesus was tempted. According to the Gospel of Matthew, the devil took Jesus to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. In their full splendor, as, as, as one translation puts it. So Jesus did see them all from the mountaintop. But he did not sin. So the desires of the eyes referred to temptation, and the desires of the flesh referred to sin. And the third phrase, the pride in possession, refers to going after the material things of the world, hoping that we can live comfortably, improve our social status, and procure safety and security for ourselves. Accumulating more and more of these material things of this world to procure safety and security, to make sure that we live comfortably. The Apostle John says that such material things of this world are temporary. They do not last but pass away. As a result, who put their trust in them also do not last, but pass away. But perhaps the most devastating news of them all is this, that these are not from God. As a result, the love of, the, the love of God is not in those who pursue such things. And for these reasons, says the Apostle John, 
reject worldliness. Because it is not compatible with those who have seen the light and chosen to live and walk in that light. So that's about worldliness. Now let's look at godliness. And I find that in verses 12 through 14. And you'll see this as I read. The Apostle John talks about three groups of people. Children, young men, and fathers. And he wrote these words to affirm their pursuit of godliness. And you will see that as well. Verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you little children. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Now he's going to go through the same thing again. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, the commentaries differ and what the words children, young men, and fathers mean in these verses. Some say they they actually refer to the ages of those people who were in Apostle John's congregation at the time. So children meant children. Young men meant young men. And fathers meant older people. Others say that they refer to the spiritual stages or maturity of the people. Meaning that children are new Christians... Fathers are mature Christians and the young men are in between the two in their spiritual maturity. Now, I am comfortable saying that these words probably refer to both. Actual ages of the people and also their spiritual stages of maturity. And here are my reasons. The Apostle John, by the way, was a very young man, probably in his late teens, maybe early 20s, was a very young man when Jesus included him in his 12 apostles. So think about a late teenager or an early 20-something. Further, he lived the longest of all the apostles. He had the longest life of all the apostles. And then when he wrote the book of 1 John, which scholars believe was around 90 AD, that is about 60 years after the death of Jesus, death and resurrection of Jesus, he was a very old man. Probably in his late 70s or early 80s. It is very likely the fathers that John refers to are his contemporaries 
who came to know Jesus at a young age, perhaps through the ministry of John himself, when he was a young apostle. So in other words, remember that Jesus had passed, died and resurrected and gone to, ascended into heaven, and the apostles were initially ministering in Jerusalem, and they, they scattered everywhere and started ministering to them. And it's possible, so at that time, John, the apostle John was still a young man, and it's possible some of these people came to know Christ through the ministry of Apostle John, and they were probably his contemporaries, meaning the uh, same age. If that was the case, now, now what happens, 60 years have gone by, they have grown all together, they have followed Christ together, having John as their pastor, and this means that they, these people that he's referring to as fathers, have walked with Jesus for a long, long time. Just as John had. John had by then most likely walked with Jesus for 60 plus years. And it's conceivable these people may have as well. As a result, they are not only old age-wise, but are also spiritually mature. That's why the Apostle John writes to them saying, in fact, he writes the same phrase twice. It's the only case where the same phrase is repeated twice. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, I'm going to come back later on in the sermon and explain that phrase. But for now, let me say, that means you have known him, meaning Jesus, for a long time long time. In other words, that phrase certainly is Christology. That, is, that says that, you know, you had known him who is from the beginning means that eternal existence of Jesus. Given that. But it also means that these fathers have known Jesus for a long time from their young age when they first came, became Christians, and until now when they are in their old age. That's why I feel comfortable saying, sure, they might refer to the ages of these people, but it also could mean children meaning young believers, fathers meaning spiritually mature believers, and young men in between the two. In fact... Today, many churches use this terminology, children, young men, and, and fathers, or a modification thereof, to describe their spiritual growth pathways. So here's one example that I put it on the, uh, 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 on, on the screen. So let's take a look at this. This is, this is from one church, and you will see these are unbelievers. They're dead. Right? I'm showing it over here. And then they, are, they become born again. And here it is, infant. And then they grow spiritually to become a child. And then they grow further spiritually to become young adult. And then they grow further to become parent. It's a similar idea. What I'm doing here is to make a case that, that those words, children, young men, and fathers, would literally mean... For children, young adults and fathers, age-wise, it could also mean the spiritual maturity or the stages at where they are in their spiritual 
maturity. Now, while pursuit of holiness would look different at different spiritual stages, it is nevertheless possible at every spiritual stage. That's the point of John writing these words when he says to fathers, children and fathers and everybody else about spiritual growth, I'm writing to you little children, meaning, hey, newly born believers, know that your sins are forgiven for his namesake. That makes sense, doesn't it? I'm writing to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. You have known him for a long, long time. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Oh, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. All of this intended to encourage them to go on and grow spiritually and pursue godliness. And it was meant as an encouragement to those in his church. Now, I have been building all of this up to answer one question. There's one question that remains. That is the question of how. How do we reject worldliness and instead pursue holiness? Up until this, we have, we have talked about what worldliness is and what godliness is, but the question remains, okay, we get it, John. You are, you are asking us to reject worldliness and pursue whole godliness. Tell us how. And to find the answer to this question, by the way, I did something interesting. Personally, for me, it was interesting. I brought side by side the three elements of worldliness that John had mentioned in this text. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. Those are the three that he mentioned. And the three spiritual sages, all of whom were pursuing godliness, namely children, young men, and fathers. And I found some, made some interesting observations, and I hope that you find this useful. I feel that provides the answer of how to reject worldliness and to pursue godliness. So you go, next three slides, and that's what you will see. Now I have put the desires of the flesh. Remember that I said that it's our sinful nature, our inclination to sin. And I put that against children, new believers. And John says two things about them. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then you know the Father. Now, while all Christians struggle with sin throughout their lives, New Christians who have only recently put away their old sinful lifestyles begin to question their salvation every time they sin. Have you come across those kinds of people? New Christians 
They have confessed Jesus as Lord. They have, they have confessed their sins and asked forgiveness for their sins. And they have become Christians. And then two days later, three days later, you know, they, they, they are tempted by something. Or they get, fall into some kind of a sin. And all of a sudden, everything breaks loose. And, oh, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know. Right? So new believers begin to question their salvation at the early stages of spiritual maturity. So here the Apostle John assures them of their salvation, saying, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That is, you have been forgiven, not because you had anything good in you, but because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. That's assurance of salvation. Don't Worry about the fact that you are struggling with your sin because the sinful nature has not been eradicated when you became a born-again believer. And your salvation does not depend on you. It depends on Jesus. It depends on His work on the cross. Start to finish. It's the work of God. It's the work of Jesus. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, He says, you know the Father. Meaning that you have been adopted into God's family at the moment of your conversion conversion, and God had become your father. Now, there are fathers sitting here, so are mothers. Would you throw away your child for misbehaving? Of course not. God is your Father, and therefore be assured of your salvation. And God, who began a good work in you, will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. That is the promise. Salvation is dependent on God's promise, not how we behave. And so, here's, the, here's what I want to propose. If For a new Christian, this is foundational. That, that the, the assurance of salvation is the foundational stone on which they can build and grow spiritually and pursue godliness. If that is not there, pursuit of holiness is a non-starter. So that's the first thing. If you are here as a new believer, please know that your salvation does not depend on you. It is the work of God from start to finish. Now, if you are an unbeliever here and you are in a sinful life, know that you have an opportunity. To confess your sins to Jesus. To put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. And to become a born again believer and be adopted into God's family. That is foundational for the pursuit of godliness. Without it, it is a non-starter. Second, I have put the desires of the eyes which we have said is temptations, and the young men side by side. And so what did John say to these young men? 
you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. Again, I have said previously, temptation by itself is not a bad thing. As long as it does not lead to sin. Remember, Jesus himself was tempted in the, in the wilderness. But he did not sin. Now, look back and say, how did Jesus overcome his temptations? By quoting scripture. There were three temptations and all three times he quoted scripture. Back to the devil. What does John say here? The middle one? The word of God abides in you. So, young, you have been, who have walked with Jesus for a little bit of time, and John is saying, hey, let the word of God abide in you, which will make you strong, and as a result, you can overcome everything that the devil throws at you. You can overcome temptations. So that's the second principle. If you want to pursue godliness, abide in God's word. Abide in God's word. Number three, I put pride in possessions, which we have said is going after the temporary things of this world, material things of this world, and Fathers, what did John say to the fathers? Both times the same thing. You know him who is from the beginning. Now, I have said here, this is a Christology statement. It's a statement about Christ, that Christ has existed from eternity. He was not, he's not a created being. So when, by writing this, you know him who is from the beginning. John is saying to them, as you reflect on this statement, the statement that says that Jesus had existed eternally, develop an eternal perspective about the things of this world. John wants the spiritually mature fathers in his congregation to focus on the things that would last into eternity and not on the things that are temporary and fade away in the face of death, such as riches and recognition, pleasure and adventure, safety and security, and so on. Here's an interesting research that I found as I was researching for an illustration. As an example... Did you know older Americans are 47 times richer than younger ones who are under the age of 35 years? Did you know that? I mean, it makes sense. You know, the older ones, you know, they're, 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 they have worked longer and therefore their pay increases and they would make more and all of that. And, you know, and, and children graduate and move on and they have more uh, you know, income at their disposal and all of that, but it, the older Americans are about 47 times richer than the younger ones who are under the age of 35. An eternal perspective would help these spiritually mature older fathers to invest their treasure in eternally significant things. That's the point. So, that's how we pursue godliness by being assured of our salvation 
by abiding in God's word and by developing an eternal perspective about the things of this world. We pursue things that last forever into eternity and not the temporary things of this world. So the goal for all of us is actually to grow and become spiritual fathers and mothers. So today, if you are in the spiritual stage of a children, grow to become a young adult. Take the next step. If you are a young adult, grow to become a spiritual father. And if you are a spiritual father, invest your time, talent, and treasure in eternally significant things. God, through his apostle John, gives us a choice as we walk in God's light. A choice between worldliness and godliness. Heed the Apostle John's call to reject worldliness and pursue godliness. That's our call from the Apostle John through God's word today for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for pointing out certain things in my life as I was preparing for the, to preach this sermon this week. And Father, continue to cleanse me, continue to mold me, continue to shape me in your son's image so that I could become a spiritual father. And I pray the same for my brothers and sisters who are here as well. Father, help us to grow, grow spiritually, to become spiritual fathers in your kingdom in this church, in our communities. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.